This message was given at Campus Fellowship's 2021 Winter Retreat in Estes Park, Colorado by Jacob Vansickle, pastor of Sacred City Church in Providence, Rhode Island. The theme of the conference was discern, how to discern God's will for your life. We hope you find this encouraging. If you have your Bibles, turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. The question we're going to ponder tonight is, should I listen to my heart? Or should you listen to your heart? Now, I, I bet you don't even realize how often you receive that advice. Listen to your heart. It's just so commonplace, we don't even realize it. It's in songs, it's in movies, it's in books, it's in just everyday conversation. Now, sometimes they'll explicitly say, listen to your heart, or other times people say, be true to yourself. But what feels right to you? Or look inside. Or look and see who you are. Listen to your heart. When I was young, you know, Cascada, does, it, does anybody know Cascada? No, I'm dating yes. myself. Okay, okay. The song, Listen to Your Heart, came out. Okay, which that was the actual title, title, Listen to Your Heart. I'm getting a nod in the back, okay? Listen to your heart. And th this is the lyrics of the song. Listen to your heart when it's calling for you. Listen to your heart. There is nothing else you can do. And there you have it. It's like there's nothing else you can do. Or if you just watch pretty much any Disney movie, okay, that is the message of basically all Disney movies. I, I was doing some field research with my kids. <laughs> I told them, hey, I'm, I'm trying to think of all the different places in Disney movies where the advice is listen to your heart. And they, I, and they don't watch Disney movies that often. I'm not like anti-Disney. We've watched most of them. And they, they came up with some examples. You know, you know when the grandma was talking to Moana and we, we turned to it and they were right. That was like all the advice. Or then we got to, uh, we watched the beginning and end of Brave. This is the easiest field research ever. You know, it's like, we watched the beginning and the end, and the end of Brave, the thesis statement is given. It says, our fate lives within us. You only have to be brave enough to see it. And then the, the story, if you, it's probably been a while if you've ever seen it. It's like, she's supposed to be becoming queen. She's supposed to be... Uh, have an arranged marriage with these people, so they have this alliance of the tribes, and everyone is like on board with it, on board with this, and she knows deep down, I'm not going to do that. That's not right, and everybody else is wrong, and she's right, and that's how it kind of pans out in the story. Or the Little Mermaid. I know, I just know, I'm supposed to be with that guy that I've only seen for a few seconds. <laughs> And he loves me purely based on my looks because I can't talk, okay? <laughs> and I know so much deep down that it's true that I'm going to change my species, <laughs> okay? And it's like, that's the message. And in fact, I was like just Google, Google searching and I found on Etsy. You can go and buy it if you want. It's a keychain with the Little Mermaid that says, listen to your heart and don't listen to anyone else. <laughs> like, like, there's a keychain. <laughs> but it's everywhere, everywhere. Listen to your heart. Now here's, here's a more serious example, one that kind of hits at the heart of our cultural moment. I am a man caught in a woman's body. Or I am a woman caught in a man's body. Carl Truman, he recently wrote a book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. And he proposes this idea of like, you know, if I would have brought that sentence to my grandfather who died in the 90s, he wouldn't just disagree with it. He probably wouldn't even disagree with it because he wouldn't even understand it. It'd be just a, like, did I hear you wrong? I, he wouldn't even understand it. And he writes this book with how did we get to where the, the average person in the 90s wouldn't even understand the, the sentence, to now in 2021, last day of 2021, 
It's a commonplace sentence. And the media, and basically every institution, on social media and celebrities, just everywhere, it's a common thing. And he kind of runs through, this is how we got there. And for him, he starts with Rene Descartes. Again, if you took a philosophy class, I'm sure you, you've heard that name. And he said, I think, therefore, I am. And to put the existence of a person, you know you exist because you think. You know you exist because internally you know you have an internal voice. And then we shifted gears into Romanticism. And in Romanticism, it was all about the feeling. Your true, authentic self was in the feeling. So, I think, therefore, I am became, became I am what I think. Now, again, it wasn't all bad. There's some really good poetry written at that time. But it was a shift. It was a move. Then a guy came along named Sigmund Freud. Who's heard of Sigmund Freud? Oh, good old Mr. Freud, okay? And he was steeped in romanticism, steeped in it. And he started to, uh, to counsel and work with people, and, and, he, and he saw in himself and in others there are internal desires with, within people, and people think about sex a lot. So it went from I am what I think to I am what I think and I think about sex a lot. So before Freud, sex was something that people did. After Freud, sex became something that you are, an identity. You know, you, you think of like heterosexual, homosexual, bise bisexual. From the beginning of time, people have been doing all sorts of things sexually. But it wasn't something that you identified as. It was something that you did. It wasn't an identity category. That didn't exist. And then there was a shift. You had to find yourself internally. And if you look internally, there are a lot of sexual urges, obviously, that would be at the center of your identity. And then now, we get to the transgender revolution. And it's, I am what I think, and I think I'm a man or a woman. Now, I know in saying this and kind of going through this in this size of crowd that I've offended some of you. And I know what I just, like, in kind of poking at this, poking at the bear of what, what our culture says right now, that it's very countercultural, and some of you are like, you're just way off, man. You're way off. And I would just ask you, just for a second, to put kind of your preconceived notions aside and ask yourself, why do I think what I think? Why? And come with, it, with an open mind. Just an open mind. Because it's not going to stop here. It's not going to stop here. For example, I know in good authority, I have some, some people that are close to me that work in public schools in rural Iowa, okay? I, rock and roll just made it to Iowa, okay? So that's why I'm using these examples, okay? These are some examples from rural Iowa in the schools. A kid comes to the school with a chart for his teachers with a different name for every day of the week along with a different pronoun for, the, for every day of the week. Here you go. Another kid, another school district. Kid comes to school... She says, I'm a man now, so they give, uh, give her an, an, another bathroom to use. Weeks go by. I don't know how long went by. Some time went by. And then she came to school and she says, I now identify as a cat and I demand a litter box in the bathroom. Rural Iowa. Okay? Now, if you're saying, well, that's just too far, why? Why? Why would that be too far? We've already said, okay, we're, we're forgetting about our bodies. We've already said we're forgetting about our DNA. We're already saying it's all about what is inside. Now, a lot of you, I know you're not on board with someone identifying as a cat, okay? Or identifying as a man or a woman when they're not. But I think in working with Christians, 
year after year after year, I think a lot of Christians make decisions in the exact same way. You look inside, you pick the deepest desires that you have, and you say, yep, that's what I'm going to do. That's what I'm going to be about. You look inside and you're like, I just know, I know, I know. I'm supposed to be a doctor because I know. You looked inside, you saw a deep desire, and you went with it. Or I know, I know, I know that I'm supposed to be with him. Or I'm supposed to be with her. You look inside, you see a desire, and you go for it. Now, oftentimes Christians will do this, and then they'll credit God with it. God is leading me. God is calling me. God, and, and what that does is it basically says, you can't touch this decision. Not only is it internal, but it's God. Now, before we even look at the text, I want to give you four reasons why you shouldn't trust your internal desires as your primary leading. So here's the thesis statement. You should not base your primary identity or base all of your decisions on the way you think or feel internally. If you don't want to write all that down, just put think and feel internally and put a question mark by it. Question, like, okay, and here's the first reason. Your desires change. Your desires change. Think of yourself when you were 12. Okay, think of your 12, okay, does everybody have your 12-year-old your self in mind? And we'll go back to that one. I skipped over that one on accident. So think, think about your 12-year-old self. What did you desire? And do you still desire it with the same fervency? <laughs> Not even, it's like, if I look at my 12-year-old self, I was like, my biggest passions were like butterfingers and baseball cards. You know, it's like, I look in t inside internally, that is what my heart beated for. We were idiots when we were 12. Your desires will change. The next one is if you look internally, you'll see a lot of different desires. A lot of different desires. And they'll compete with one another. Now, sometimes it's, it's obvious. See, this is a good desire and this is a bad desire. But sometimes you'll see multiple good desires within you. But you can't have them all. So which one is actually you? Which one, which one is actually true when you have multiple desires within you? The third one is this. Your desires are shaped by your surroundings. Here's an example from Tim Keller. He said that if you had two people in two different time periods walking down the street of their, their hometown, and one was from Manhattan in modern times, and the other one was in some sort of Saxon village hundreds of years ago, okay? and they're walking, strolling down their hometown. And they both looked inside of themselves and saw two desires. The first one was a de desire for sex outside of the norm in their culture. Okay, that was the first desire. And the second one was a de desire to do violence, to hurt people. Okay? One in modern Manhattan, strolling down Manhattan. The other one in a Saxon village strolling down, okay? And he, he said that both would have issues when it comes to their surrounding culture. Because Manhattan would say, you know, your true self are the sexual desires. But the, the violent urges, that's not your true self. You need to submerge that. You need to push that down as much as you possibly can. But that, that guy walking in the Saxon village, it would be exactly the opposite. You know, those, those divergent sexual desires, push those down, push those down. The desire to pillage, oh, that's you. That's you. That's, pillaging is what we do. You know, it's like your surrounding culture will deeply affect which desires are like, that's legit, that's not. That's legit, that's not. The fourth one is this. Your desires are deceitful. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? 
The reason why we think that we can look inside and define who we are is because those worldviews are based off of the idea that we are not sinful, that there's nothing wrong going on inside of here. But if there is something wrong going inside of us, in our hearts, then when we look inside, we shouldn't trust everything that we see inside of ourselves. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Does this mean that we can't trust at all our desires? Does this mean we can't trust our desires at all? Does this mean that God doesn't shape our desires at all? Does this mean that the Holy Spirit doesn't do something inside of us at all? Well, that's what we're going to talk about tonight. How do you actually look inside of yourself and look at your desires? What can you expect as a Christian when it comes to the Holy Spirit working with your desires? So let's read the text for tonight. It's in Philippians 2, 12 and 13. We'll pray and we'll get going. Philippians 2, 12 to 13. This is what it says. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to focus, that you would help us to just put all the distractions aside and to hear from your word. Lord, we acknowledge that some of these things kind of just buck up against the culture, and we just ask for the grace to see what is actually real. We just ask for the grace to have humility, that there are some things that our ancestors thought a hundred years ago that we're now embarrassed of. And that might be true of us too, a hundred years from now. So help us to see what is actually right, what is actually wrong, and how we can actually look at our internal desires in a way that you would desire. Amen. Okay, we're going to look at five things in the text tonight. Now, don't, like, please don't leave. They're short five things, okay? They're five short things. New identity, new heart, new desires, new decisions, and new motives. We'll start with new identity. Philip Reif, he wrote a book called The Triumph of the Therapeutic. And he, he says, if you look throughout human history, people are basically divided into four different categories of thinking. You had the political man, the age of the political man, and you would get your main purpose in those days and times, you're thinking like ancient Greece, ancient Rome, from your community. It was a communal identity. And then we shifted to the religious man. This would be like the Middle Ages and the Reformation. And the purpose was found in religion. Your main purpose, your main identity was found in religion. And then we went to the economic man, the industrial age. And your purpose was found in production. Your main identity, your main reason for being on the planet was to produce and then now we live in the age of the psychological man, and purpose is found in self. Now, obviously, throughout all these different times, you would see shreds of truth in all of them. What it comes down to is which one has the trump card? Which one is, has the deepest reality? Yourself? The way your production? Your community? Your religion? Which is it? Which one would the Bible endorse? Well, if we look at our text in Philippians 2, it says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, people often misread this verse. Oftentimes, they'll read work out, meaning figure out. You know, someone's like, work it out, figure it out. That's not what it's saying. It's not saying figure out your salvation. See, if, you know, figure out where you're at. You know, that's not what this verse is saying. Or sometimes people will read it as if it means work for, work for your salvation with fear and trembling. Try really hard. That's not what it's saying either. That would kind of go against everything Paul wrote. It wouldn't, it wouldn't fit in the letter. 
or any of his writings. What it means is your salvation, work out your salvation into all of life with reverence, fear, and trembling. This salvation works its way into all of life. And we know that's what he means because right before that, he says, as you have always obeyed in my presence and now in my absence. He's saying, obey in every area of life. This gospel will work its way into everything. Now, which one is the reality? The religious man, the psychological man, the, the economic man for Christians? Well, I think the most intuitive would be the religious man, right? We just say, work out your salvation. Salvation is God saying, you're this. You're my child. You are righteous. You are justified. You have the spirit. You are a new creation. You are beloved. You are a saint. You are an exile. God, from the outside, says, this is who you are. The religious man. But it's not just that. Because this identity is meant to work out into all of life. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling in all of life. And as we've been talking about, this works out in vocation. This works out in, the, in just everything you do. It's productive. So Christianity would say, you know the productive man? That we would lay claim on that too. That's a part of your identity as well. This is going to work its way out into everything you do. But what about community? Well, Philippians is written to individual. No, Philippians would be like a horrible first name. <laughs> you know, it's like, just Phil for short, I guess. You know, it's like, it's not, it's not written to an individual. It's written to the church in Philippi. And Americans, we're just, we misread the Bible all the time. Because most of the Bible is written to communities, and we almost always read it individually. Me, 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 me. Okay, it's like, but most of the Bible, there are some letters written to an individual, and some prophecies given to one individual, and, but usually those are for everybody. You know, it, it's communal. This identity is supposed to be lived out in the world and in a community together as a church as a body of believers. But it's not just that. It's not just a community. It's not just production. It's not just God saying, this is who you are. It is internal. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God works in you. Your identity is also found in the what God is doing inside you have a new identity. The next one is a new heart. A new heart. Do we have any Marvel fans here? Any big Marvel? Okay, now don't, please don't come up and talk to me about all the Marvel stuff. I'm like not cut up at all. I'm waiting for my kids that are old enough to watch them, okay? So I'm gonna, I'm gonna wait until they're like 52 and we can watch one a week or something. <laughs> like, okay, so... I am not one of the people that we can talk about the whole universe, but I, I, I kind of dabbled a little bit, okay? And when you look at the Marvel Universe, and don't correct me about anything I say, okay? Um, it's basically one storyline, right? Okay, there's one big storyline that kind of connects all the different movies, but then you have sub-storylines that kind of interweave with the big story. Is that right? Is that right? Okay, so you have... Um, Spider-Man, okay, which is like the cool teen, like I'm a nerd and then, then I'm cool, you know, like that storyline, okay? And then you have Thor, which is I'm jacked out of my mind storyline, okay? I'm not jealous, you're jealous, okay? <laughs> okay. And then you have Ripped Grandpa, which is Captain America, okay? And you have all these different storylines interweaving to tell one big story. God's story is similar to that. There are different motifs, different storylines interweaving, different images used throughout the entire Bible telling one story. And you can tell God's story with one image, the heart. 
the heart. The story of God could be communicated as the story of a human heart. So I read this, this passage, Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things. We could add on to that Romans 3, 11, no one understands, no one seeks God. This means your heart is corrupted since the fall. You desire things that you should not desire. It's askew. It's wrong. It's going in the wrong direction. This doesn't mean that everything is wrong. You're made in God's image. There's some good things that come with that. You have a conscience telling you right and wrong. You have common grace that God gives every single person that holds them back from going as far as they could go. But still, your heart is wrong in rebellion towards God. But we, re- we read Jeremiah 17.9 in view of what comes later in Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 31.33, this is what it says. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Romans 11 tells us that this is the new covenant. God is going to work with his spirit inside of his people. Ezekiel also tells us this in Ezekiel 36. It says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. God is going around giving new hearts. New hearts that love different things. And this leads to a new life. This is what it says in Romans 6. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Obedient from the heart. A lot of people think that the Christian life is just doing things that you don't want to do. That's what it means to be a Christian. You just go around doing things you don't want to do. That is not the Christian life. We are obedient from the heart. Meaning when God saves someone, he gives them different, deep down desires that desire different things, that love to obey, that love God and love his people. It's kind of like before someone is a Christian, or like an animal, like a demonic, soulless cat, okay? <laughs> That's what we're like, okay? And when we become Christians, we, we become a loyal, faithful, playful dog. That's what we become, okay? <laughs> Stick with me here, okay? Okay? Now, cats and dogs have different intrinsic desires, okay? You, you can play, catch with, or play fetch with the dog pretty easily. It doesn't take a ton of training. You throw the ball, and they're like, oh, yes, this is great. You know, okay? <laughs> they have a deep intrinsic desire to play fetch, okay? A cat has a deep intrinsic desire to maul your face when you sleep, okay? <laughs> different desires between the cat and the dog. And I'm sorry if I'm offending you cat lovers. You're, you're wrong, okay? <laughs> you're wrong. Okay? But it's... Now, can a cat play fetch? Yes, it can. It can play fetch, okay? It's like... It physically can. But there's a difference in their nature. A difference in their nature. And that's what happens when someone becomes a Christian. They can still sin, but there's a difference in their nature. They love the gospel. They love God's word. They love obeying him. They love being generous. They love using their spiritual gifts. They love showing people who he is. They love working hard at their jobs because people can see it and they can glorify their father who is in heaven. They love doing good for the days are evil. They love God. That is the difference. Obedient from the heart. 
He gives a new identity and a new heart. And this new heart comes with new desires. New desires. When my youngest was born, our oldest was six years old, okay? That was, it's, it was a lot, okay? <laughs> it was a lot. And there was a lot that went on with that, but one thing I did not expect is during that time, so it was almost a baby a year during that, the, during that time, and the thing I didn't expect was with the, the college students during that time, such a bond was created because for a lot of them, this is their first time like holding a baby or being in a hospital, like for a good, a good reason, you know, it's like, or whatever, it's like, it was a lot of them, their first time experiencing that. And one of my favorite things to do is just to take a, a newborn or newborn baby and give it to a college guy and, you know, whisper something like, don't kill it. You know, it's like, okay, and so I can watch them like, like, <laughs> like they turn green instantly, you know, it's like, and it's like for a lot of people learning those lessons for the first time, you really, when you, you hold a baby for the first time, if you've never done it, you realize just how helpless they are. It's like they can't even hold their own neck. <laughs> You're holding, it's like, okay, and they need to eat again. It's only been two hours, and you're eating again, and they need to be changed again. They're just helpless, helpless, helpless. We are like that often in the Christian life right when we become a Christian. Who here, when I'm talking about the new desires of a Christian, you're like, you know what? I need to confess. I still have bad desires within me. I look in my own heart, and I still see things, and I'm like, that doesn't fit the heart of a Christian. Anybody? Is it just me? Okay, 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 thank you. Okay, it's like, why is that? Why is that? Well, for some of you, I'm not going to, I'm going to call a spade a spade. For some of you, it's because you're not a Christian, and you need a new heart. And for some of you, it means you're still growing. And for all of you, it means you're still a human. <laughs> it's like, but here's a good text. This kind of shed, shed some light on it. 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 3. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you are not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? When you first become a Christian, you have a new heart. You're a new creation. But in your immaturity, like a newborn baby, you still have a lot of work to do. There are still a lot of things that need to change. You're very helpless. And what Paul is saying is it's hard when someone is very new in the faith, it's hard to even distinguish. Are they a Christian? Are they not a Christian? I have to even address you like you're people of the flesh because you're so young. You're an infant. There is a change. I don't, want to, I don't want anyone to think that there isn't. There's an instantaneous change. But there's also growth that happens. And I used to, you know, when I first started ministry, I used to think, okay, I need to, like somehow to be able to look into someone's heart. Like, are they a Christian? Are they not a Christian? And then what I realized is the remedy for both, both the person that is a Christian, but they're just really struggling and immature and young, or the person that is not a Christian. They say they are, but they're not. The solution is the same. And this is why I don't, I don't fear just, just putting it out there and saying, where are you at? Because the solution is the same. Colossians 2.6 says this, Therefore, as you receive Christ the Lord, so walk in him. The same way that you receive him is how you walk in him. You see your sin. You acknowledge it as sin. You see God's faithfulness. You turn to him and you say, God, change me. That's how you became a Christian. And that's how you'll walk in him. That's how you'll grow as a Christian. So if you aren't a Christian, Lord willing, God, ask God, give me a new heart. And if you are a Christian, same thing. God, change my heart. Make me new. This is what it says in Galatians 5.16. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. 
within each Christian, there are two competing desires going on, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the spirit. You walk by the spirit, it's like you're constantly taking a sledgehammer to the flesh. You walk by the flesh, it's like you're constantly taking a sledgehammer to the spirit. Competing, and notice the word, desires within you. Scripture gives a lot of analogies for Christians to work with when it comes to these competing desires within you. The spirit inside of you, yet the lingering and dwelling sin called the flat. Here are two analogies that Scripture gives. The first one is in Ephesians 5, 17 through 18. It says, therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. That's pertinent for this retreat. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the spirit. So in this section, in Ephesians 5, he's, he's going back and forth and comparing things of the world or things of the flesh and things of God and things of the Spirit. And as he's going back and forth, the things that he's comparing them to correlate, meaning there's an analogy that connects, connects them. And you're going through, and it's pretty easy to see. And then you get to this one, it's like, okay, drunkenness and walking by the Spirit. What's the connection there? Here's at least two of the, the connections. Drunkenness, like walking in the Spirit, is progressive and effective. Have you ever been walking down the street and then boom, you're drunk? No, that's not how it works. It's like, it's like oh man, I'm, that's weird. Okay, it's like, that's not how it works. You have to drink alcohol to get drunk, okay? And not just a little bit. You have to drink Starting one beer, two beer, three beers. Okay, it's like that's how it works. It's progressive, and it's also effective. You know, you can't say, you know what, I'm just going to drink half of this bottle and nothing's going to happen. It's like that's not how it works. It is effective. The same with the Spirit. You're not going to get zapped by the Spirit. You're just walking down the street, all of a sudden, boom, way more mature. It's like, that's not how it works. It takes a sip and a sip and a sip. It's progressive and effective. You see, in drunkenness, you progressively see, there's, you know, you go from just not thinking as clearly and then you're stumbling around, then you black out. You overhear with the Spirit. It takes more and more control more and more refining of your character, more and more of just who you actually are. It's effective. The next analogy is this Galatians 6, 7 through 9. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh, from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. All of life is planting and reaping. Planting and reaping. Right now, as you sit in your seat, you are planting and you are reaping. This was said by James Russell Moore. It says, old age is the harvest of all the years that have gone before it. You are currently reaping everything that has come before. And some people will say, no, the world isn't like that. The universe isn't like that. And this verse says, God will not be mocked. It is like that. You are constantly planting seeds with your thoughts, with your actions, with your relationships, with your priorities, with your decisions, and those little seeds will grow. And... I, I hate weeding. I, I do not enjoy weeding. But I also know if I do not weed, that little sprout will turn into some mammoth of a weed. It's like, that it's like, this is going to take over my house. This is going, it's like, it's, you have to weed often or it's going to grow into something that you do not want to deal with. Your life is like that. And you need to plant seeds of obedience and to see uh, seeds of godly thinking and godly priorities because you will reap them. Okay? 
It's progressive, it's effective, and it will have a result. That's why we don't, that's why we don't give up in doing good. Because we know, I know, I don't see it right now, but I know this seed will become something. I don't see it right now, but I know this seed will become something. And this is so much hope for you. There have been retreats that I've gone to, and I'm like, I'm in a hole, and I dug the hole. This is hope to you. Because it means you can plant seeds that will get you out of the hole by God's grace. Like, it will be effective. God is not mocked. So new identity leads to a new heart and new desires. And then we have new decisions. New decisions. All of these things that I've listed before about the desires of the new heart, the desires of what God is doing will come up in decision-making. Look at Philippians 2, 12 through 13 again. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now you might think, okay, I, I understand that God will work in me to desire to share the gospel or desire to read his word or desire to work hard or desire to be humble. Like all of those things are pretty obvious, you know? It's like, does God desire for me to be proud? Now that's a pretty obvious one. No, the answer is no. He doesn't desire for me to be proud. But here's, here's a question. Does God ever produce desires within your new heart that desire specific things in a specific time or place and which would affect your decision? I would say yes. And here's some verses, okay? So when he's working on your heart, will he ever put specific desires there? Here, here are a few examples. Acts 8, 29. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join the, this chariot. Now we don't know if this was an audible voice, but I think usually if there's an audible voice from heaven, it says there's an audible voice from heaven. I wouldn't die for this, but I think it was probably internally the Spirit was saying, go and speak to that guy in the chariot. And he goes and he shares the gospel with the Ethiopian eunuch. He becomes a Christian and he baptizes him. It's a great story. But the Spirit leads him specifically, that guy and that chariot. Here's, here's another one. Second uh, Corinthians 2, 12 through 13 when I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. So there is a very clear open door for the gospel. But his spirit was not at rest. He just couldn't shake it. Titus isn't with me. And he says, okay, I'm going to go be with Titus. His desires were changed. Now, here it doesn't say if the, the Spirit was shaping those desires, but it seems like we're talking about Paul here. It's like there's a pretty good chance there. Here's another verse, uh, Acts 15, 28. This is the first council in church history. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. So they send out all these requirements for the way that Gentile believers are supposed to act, and it says it seemed good to us and the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit led them to make a specific decision about how to function as Jews and Gentiles within the church. A specific decision. Here's another one. Nehemiah 2.12. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me. I had told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. He's leading a group of people, and he said, okay, let's go scope it out. And he's like, I hadn't told anyone what God put in my heart. And this has to do with plans on rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. This is a specific decision. This isn't like love your neighbor. It's a specific decision of how to love his neighbor. Build the walls. Here, here's another one, Nehemiah 7.5. Then my God put into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. The next thing he does is he has all the records brought together. So meaning God put desires in his heart that said, let's get all the records of the genealogy so we can organize these people. It's pretty specific. 
in his role as a leader. Here's another one. 1 Timothy 3.1. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. To desire to be an elder or an overseer or a pastor, it's desiring something good. Now, obviously, you know, Paul says this in Philippians, you can preach the gospel out of envy. You could desire to be a pastor out of envy too. But if the Spirit puts it there, it is a good desire. God can produce good desires within people. Now, is everyone called to be a pastor? Certainly not. But God can bring that desire and, and bring it and nourish it to make specific decisions. And then in Philippians 2, the text we're on, it says, for God works in you both to will, desire, make decisions, and to work for his good pleasure. So does the Spirit produce specific desires for specific times? Specific is a hard word, okay? <laughs> to make decisions, I think so. Now, how do you actually assess it? Here are just three things. We can have a whole talk on this, but here are just three things. Are you growing in godliness? Are you growing in godliness? The context of this verse is they're working their salvation into all of life with reverence towards God, fear and trembling. That's the context. It's not you're having a really bad year. That's not the context. The gospel is making its way into everything. And God is working inside of them. So are you growing in godliness? If you're having a period of growing in godliness and desires are growing with it that are specific, I would be more inclined to trust those desires. If you're in a time where you're just spiritually, you are not in a good place, I would be less inclined to trust those desires. Because remember, you have the spirit and the flesh inside of you at war against one another. If the Spirit is winning in the general areas, it would make sense that the Spirit would be winning in the specific areas as well. The next question is this. Have you been growing over a long period of time? One of the hardest parts of working with college students is seeing students sow seeds that aren't good seeds. And then they, for four years, and then they get to graduation when they need to make a really big decision and they want to be zapped by God's leading. They just want to know. I just want to know right now. And it's like you can't microwave that. That's not how it works. It's like, so I can give you some principles, and this is what God's word says, but it's like you've been sowing these seeds for a long time. Is this desire happening over a long period of time. And back to your 12-year-old self. You know, it's like our desires are like roller coasters, especially in big decisions. You want to give it some time. Is, is it continuing? Next one. Are your desires aligned with God's general will as seen in his word? Does it actually align with the commands that we've been going through? You can draw a direct correlation. God has commanded this, therefore, and this desire fits it. It's an application of it. And I know I said three, but here's a fourth one, a bonus one. Extra, no extra charge. Here's another one. Are these desires accompanied with good motives? Are these desires accompanied with good motives? Which is our last point. New motives. God gives not only a new identity, not only a new heart with new desires and new decisions, but new motives as well. Are you guys ready for the last decision filter? Okay. We've had two decision filters before. Remember the beautiful brown beans of life hot water going over, the elixir of decision-making life going into the cup, okay? This is the last decision filter when it comes to motives. So think back to your, the decision you're trying to make. 
and run it through these questions tomorrow when you're spending time with the Lord. Here's the first one, love. 1 Corinthians 13, 3. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Remember, we already talked about this verse. It's possible to even die a martyr's death without love. So here's the question. Is this decision being made out of love? Love for God, love for others. What's the motive? Is it out of love? Next, faith. Hebrews 11.6. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. Whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So here's the question. Is this decision being made out of faith? I remember reading this verse for the first time. I'm sure somebody had spoken to me at some point in my childhood, but actually reading it on my own for the first time in college. And I remember looking at my schedule. I looked at my schedule, and I'm like, can I honestly say that everything on this is motivated by faith? Because if it isn't, according to this verse, it is not pleasing to God. It doesn't please Him. Now, what that meant is, for me, a lot of the decisions and what was on my schedule didn't change. How I perceived those decisions changed. I wasn't just going to class because I wanted a good grade. I was going to class because, God, you will reward me. You exist, and you will reward me for the way I behave in this class. I started sleeping through less classes. <laughs> it's a, not perfect, but less, okay? Because it was a different mindset when it came to the class. Faith. Here's the next one, glory, 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Is this decision being made for the glory of God? Is this making much of you or making much of him? Is it making people think, wow, God is powerful. God is loving. God is amazing. Or is it making other people think, wow, that person is powerful or amazing or awesome? Is it glorifying him? Is that your heartbeat? I want to lift him up. I want people to see him. I want people to worship him. Here's the next one. Prayerful motives. Psalm 139, 23 through 24 says this, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Here's the question. Am I praying my motives or just the decision? Notice what David does. He says, God, search me. Is there anything wrong in here? Anything grievous? Get rid of that and lead me. I think oftentimes Christians pray way too much about the decision. God, should I do this? Should I do this? Should I do this? Should I do this? And they should pray more about their motives in the decision. What am I actually desiring here? Why am I scared to make that decision? Why am I so confident to make this decision? And you pray through your motives. And what I have found in my own experience in, in viewing other people live the Christian life is if you pray through your motives and God fixes the motive, oftentimes extreme clarity comes from that. God changes the motive and you're like, oh, I don't even desire that anymore. <laughs> you know? Or God changes the motive and you're like, okay. I should, I should still do that, but I'm going to do it with a completely different heart and a completely different mindset. Or he changes the motive and your desires shift to fit that motive towards something else. Pray through your motives. I don't, I, you know, it's probably dangerous to give percentages to things like this, but I, a higher majority of your prayers should be over your motives than God, should I marry this person? Should I marry this person? Should I marry this person? It's like, what are you expecting him to put? 
John in the clouds, <laughs> like whatever. It's like, but if you pray through your motives, I th- I, there will be more clarity. The last one is this, pleasure. Philippians 2, 12 through 13 ends with this. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This passage is actually pretty big for me in my life personally. Because I was thinking about this passage and I was meditating on it and I was praying about whether or not I should go into ministry. I was recently graduated from college. I was engaged to be married to my wife. A lot of things going on in my, in my life and in the church. And just praying like a crazy person about these things. And specifically around this verse. And then I watch a movie. <laughs> okay, this is kind of lame. But it's like, I watch a movie called Chariots of Fire. Has anybody seen Chariots of Fire? You all need to watch Chariots of Fire, okay? It's the story of Eric Liddell. He was a Christian. He was a 400-meter runner in the Olympics. And then he goes off to be a missionary in China. And this isn't one of those, like, lame Christian movies. This actually won an Academy Award. It was a real, actual good movie, okay? And this is what Eric Liddell says in the movie. He says, I believe God has made me for a purpose. And God has made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. And it's like I heard that quote, and it just snapped into place so many things along with this verse. Philippians 2, 13. I believe God has made me for a purpose. God is working in you both to will, producing desires that align with his purpose. And I looked at my desires, I'm like, man, I would love to be in college ministry. There are a lot of things that were just so much just smoke all around me, but I'm like, man, I have a desire to do this. And then it says, I believe God has made me for a purpose and he has made me fast. In order to do something, you have to have the opportunity to do it and you have to have the skills to do it the opportunity, and the skills. So when God is working in you both to will, that will accompanies the work, both to will and to work, the opportunity and the skills. And I saw that there was an opportunity. There were a few people that were going off staff, and there was an opportunity and a need for someone to do it. And as I talked to people, people affirmed that there are skills there that, that would work, that this could make sense. But the kicker was the last one. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. It says he's both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And I looked at my life, and and that time period, I was spending Fridays on campus. And spending it with my friends and who they were reaching out to and reading the Bible with people, trying to reach out to people, praying for kids. It's like Fridays I had like, uh, I worked a few evenings a week and worked all the other days of the week except for Sunday. And I had Fridays off just to like just spend on campus. And I realized that I didn't just enjoy that time because I was with my friends. I liked my friends. <laughs> but it's like it wasn't just that. And it wasn't just that I felt like it was effective. It, was, you know, it just didn't fit with skill set and fit with opportunity. But when I was there, I'm like, I felt the pleasure of God. This pleases God. Because God is working in us to bring pleasure to him. And there is no experience like doing something and not just knowing, okay, yeah, he, he commanded me to do it, and this is good. And, but it is more than that, that God has led me to do something, and God, it, this pleases him. And to experience that pleasure. And my desire for every single one of you, when you make decisions, is that you would experience that pleasure from God. That you know you are pleasing him in your decisions. Because in his right hand, as the psalmist says, in his right hand are pleasures 
forever. Let's pray. Father, we pray for our future, and we acknowledge that we basically know nothing about it, but you know everything. And we ask that we would not be like the world that looks to our internal fleshly desires for our own, our main identity, that we would have some caution when it comes to our desires. But we would stoke the fire of a new heart within us and sow to the Spirit and yield to the Spirit. And we ask that you would produce new desires within us. We need you for this. We have no hope without you. Amen. If you found this encouraging, we hope you'll subscribe or follow for more content. Or go to our website, campusfellowship.com, for other resources. Campus Fellowship is a student organization whose goal is to come alongside local churches to reach college campuses. Thanks for listening.